This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. On late Thanksgiving evening in 2014, 50-year-old Bart Campolo declared to his father, prominent evangelical preacher Tony Campolo, that he no longer believed in God. This confession, which could have torn the family apart, instead brought Bart and Tony closer together as they worked to discover what they each believed and why, as well as what they could still affirm together. Why I Left, Why I Stayed, Conversations on Christianity Between an Evangelical Father and His Humanist Son is a book that reflects a father and son's spiritual journey and how they evolved when their paths diverged. This week we will be speaking with one of the co-authors, the son, Bart Campolo, And next week, we'll be speaking to his father, Tony. A little bit about Bart. He is a community builder, counselor, and humanist chaplain at the University of Southern California. He is also the founder of Mission Year and host of the popular Humanize Me podcast. He and his wife, Marty, live in Los Angeles. Hello, Bart. Hello. (laughs) Welcome to Common Threads. Thanks for joining us. Hey, well, thank you for having me. Certainly, certainly. Um... Before we get started on the book, uh, let me ask you this. What are your duties as a humanist minister at the University of Southern Cal? You know, I mean, what's interesting is is that if I say I'm a humanist chaplain, people get confused. But, like, you know what a chaplain does, you know? Like, you build a community of people that are pursuing goodness in a particular way, and you, you counsel people when they're going through troubles in their relationships, and you show up at funerals, and... You know, you, you just try to nurture people's spiritual growth. And at, U, at USC, I, I'm sort of charged with nurturing the spiritual growth of all the students who want to be really good people and want to make the world a better place and want to cultivate a sense of gratitude for the privilege of being alive, but don't believe in God. And, and how does one obtain credentials of being essentially a chaplain without a faith tradition to, to help provide those credentials? Uh, you just make it up yourself, Fred. You just, <laughs> you just declare yourself the humanist chaplain at USC. Wow! <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm half really? kidding, but the, 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 the reality is, is that what happened to me was, is that after I, you know, I, I spent 30 years as an evangelical Christian, inner-city missionary and pastor and preacher, and so I, I had a whole ministry life. And when I finally figured out that there was just nothing left for me of supernaturalism, that I, I had sort of, all throughout my Christian life, had sort of dialed it down, you know, kept, kept moving farther and farther away from the supernatural side of Christianity and more and more towards just the values, until I finally reached the point where I was like, there's nothing left here. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in any supernatural forces. When that happened to me, the first question I asked was, oh no, what do I do now? You know, like, I'm a minister who doesn't believe in God, and I went looking for a community of people 
that we're, that we're trying to pursue goodness in a secular way. And, you know, the first, I, 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 and I went to a lot of atheist clubs that were like really full of angry people who just wanted to sit around and make fun of people who believed in God. And I wasn't interested in that. But eventually I stumbled into um, the humanist chaplain at Harvard, a guy named Greg Epstein. And Greg was the first person I, who I ever met who sort of showed me what secular ministry looks like. You know, that was sort of like, let's gather a group of people, not around what we don't believe, but let's gather them around the values that we want to pursue together. And, you know, you know, around a kind of a shared narrative that says, hey, if this life is the only one that we have, how do we make the most of it? And so it was, it was at Harvard that I sort of saw how it worked. And Greg introduced me to the dean of religious life at, U, at, at USC here in Los Angeles. And he was like, oh, you want to build a community like that? come to our university, build one here. Half our campus doesn't believe in God, and nobody's nurturing those people. So, essentially, your your evangelical ministry life was the prelude to this. I mean, that gave you the training of being a minister. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, and what's funny is, you know, is, is when people, when you know, when I work with students at USC, so, you know, I... Sometimes, like, I'll give a talk to the students in our secular student fellowship, and afterwards one of the kids will come up and go, was that a sermon? Like, <laughs> like I, I've heard of those things. And you're like, yeah, that was a sermon. That's a place where I, like, try to actually reach you emotionally and motivate you to do something that's in your best interest. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, you, you can kind of take, you can take the Jesus out of the, out of the guy, but you can't take the preacher out. And I'm still... In, in some sense, I guess I'm still an evangelist. I'm still selling a message of good news. It's just that the good news is, is that you can live a wonderful life um, in a secular way. And for a lot of people, that's news, because they sort of thought that if they didn't believe in God, being part of a community of people that collectively are going to pursue goodness wasn't an option. And that's a, it's very sad for some people when they lose their faith. They're like, oh, I miss church. I miss the music. I miss the coveredish suppers. I miss the missions trips. I wish I could be part of something like that. I, I just can't believe that story anymore. And you sort of go like, hey, I understand that you can't believe that story. That doesn't mean your spiritual life is over. Do you think that there has been an actual uh, move, a transition, a maturity in the secularist community away from the angry atheist stereotype into the the kind of secular community that you're talking about i i, I simply seem to hear about your uh, your kind of atheist or secularist more than i used to i actually i never i never heard about it before everybody was was a cranky angry atheist and they all when they left their religion they they did not leave behind the horror stories if in fact there were horrible stories to be to to be lived uh and and now i'm just seeing a lot more people here in michigan where we are people who who go out of their way to connect with the faith community in interfaith activities uh, uh so i'm just curious as i say if is this something you've noticed or or perhaps we just didn't see this other movement all along yeah i think i, th- I mean i think in some ways it's 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 as much 
a social phenomenon as anything else. What's happening is, in the early days in this country, like in the early days, 25, 30, 50 years ago, if you didn't believe in God, you better keep that under your hat because it was social suicide. It was, you, you couldn't get a job. You know, there were laws against having an atheist um, in government. You know, like, this was a Christian country, and you doggone better well believe in something. And so what happened is, is that in the early days, the only people that could be out secularists, out non-believers, would be people that were already socially marginalized. You know, because there was so much stigma attached to it that the only people that could say they were out are people that were like, you can't fire me, I quit. They were already outside of society. And so the earliest out atheists were people that were a lot of times not very socially adept. And, 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 or maybe they were angry folks in any, in any case. They weren't, very, they weren't very social people. And so it's not surprising that the earliest secular organizers were people that were, they'd either been driven out of church because they were gay or because, you know, for, for this reason or that, or, or they were just like, they just rejected the whole thing and they were pissed off. But I think what's happened now is, is that especially in the wake of people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, um, it all of a sudden became like, you know what? It's actually intellectually a credible thing. Like, you know what? There's a lot of people that don't believe in God. And then what happens is that then it becomes safer for people like me to say, you know what, like, I'm not worried about being stigmatized. And, and, and then what happens is there's more and more people, um, I mean, there have always been a lot of atheists hiding in church pews who, who just, they, they couldn't say it out loud, I don't buy this stuff anymore, and they didn't want to lose their community. But as more and more of those people say, like, hey, this doesn't make any sense to me, the question they begin to ask is, well, gosh, that doesn't mean I don't want, <laughs> doesn't mean I don't want to be part of a community. doesn't mean I don't want to... I don't want to pursue goodness. And so I think what you are seeing is, is more and more people who are leaving church or leaving some form of spirituality behind saying, hey, just because I can't believe in the medieval narrative that this thing is built around doesn't mean I don't want to practice, you know, goodness, or I don't want to practice meditation, or I don't want to practice, um, you know, intentional loving relationships. And so I, I do. I think that what's, what's happening is there's a huge bunch of people out there that can't believe in God anymore. And that's happening more and more. I mean, you can just study the, the look at the surveys, you know, as the internet, as people get more and more information, as science kind of answers more and more questions, you have more and more people going like, hey, these narratives don't make any sense to me. But a lot of those people... Just because just they don't believe in God doesn't mean they don't want meaning and purpose and a sense of belonging. And so the question that we have to ask now is, what does religion look like for non-believers? I was going to ask is, you, too. What does the pursuit of life's ultimate questions look like if you don't believe in God? Sure. And, and you, you mentioned before that you were in this life that was, you were enveloped by the evangelical Christian movement personally and professionally. And I'm just curious, how often do you find someone else who might mirror that that existence? That is to say, someone who is so invested in their religion, again, professionally as well as personally, and then all of a sudden they hit some sort of theological or philosophical brick wall, and they can no longer honestly... Oh, Fred, those guys call me every day, those men and women. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that... Um, it's, and it's it ministers most of all. 
I mean, I, I know so many ministers in prominent churches that don't believe in God anymore, and they and they're they're, they're all closeted. Um, and the reason they're closeted is because their whole identity is caught up with that. There, it's not just their income; it's their sense of self. Like they're like, who am I if I'm not a minister? This is my marriage. This is my kids. This is everyone I've ever known. This, you know, it's the cost of coming out for these people. The cost of admitting that the narrative doesn't make sense to them anymore is just so high. You know, Upton Sinclair once said that it's very difficult to convince a, a person of something if their salary depends upon them. It's very difficult to change their mind about something if their salary depends on them not changing their mind. Yeah, and, and the thing is, it isn't that they're lying. It's that, it's that if, you're, if, if, if you need to believe in something, you just don't entertain any thought that would challenge that thing because, you know, you sort of psychologically know, like, I don't want to go down that path. Um, so I need, but, but what's interesting is the reason it's ministers so much is Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book a few years ago in which he, he detailed this idea of the principle of 10,000 hours. And the idea was that to become a, an expert in anything, to master anything, it takes about 10,000 hours of practice, um, whether that's playing the violin or giving a public speech or anything. Christianity that I grew up in, most of the Christians I knew never reached 10,000 hours. They only really thought about their theology for about an hour a week on Sundays. You know, and they were just living their lives. They just took it for granted. But the ministers think about it all the time. The ministers, that's their stock in trade, so they're thinking about it. So if you're a minister, you think through Christian theology. You think about the Bible. You think about, does the Old Testament match with the New Testament? And how is it that God is loving, but he's going he's gonna to destroy most of his children for not having the right theology if you're in the evangelical world? Like, they think about that stuff all the time. When they reach their 10,000 hours, they're usually about 40 years old, and they go, uh-oh. Because to master that theology for many people, to really understand it is to abandon it. They come to the place where they go, like, this makes no sense. This idea of original sin, the idea that people are born deserving eternal damnation, and that only through the gracious gift of Jesus can they be, can they be rendered worthy of, of, of any kind of life. Like, that idea, like, if you really think it through for a long time, for many people, not for everyone, but for many people, it falls apart under that kind of scrutiny. And so that, but by the time these guys figure it out, these men, these women figure it out, they're deep. Like it's their salary. It's their, it's their life. It's, it, you know, they're 40 years old and they're like, what am I going to do now? And so, yeah, you have a lot of people that are feel, sort of trapped in, 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 in that world. You know, now, now you'll talk to my dad next week and my dad is not trapped like that. My dad really, the, the narrative really makes sense to him and he loves following Jesus and it gives meaning and purpose to his life. So, you know, the, the, not every Christian is trapped in that, but boy, there are a lot of them that are. I was just going to ask you uh, what you thought about your father, and there you, you told me. Uh, let me break in real quick to mention, for people just tuning in, that uh, you're listening to WGVU's Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella, and today I'm speaking with Bart Campolo, and he is the co-author of the book, Why I Left, Why I Stayed, Conversations on Christianity, between an evangelical father and his humanist son. So tell us a little bit about uh, your, 
Well, I was going to say uh, breaking the news to mom and dad, but before you you talk about that, tell us about your experience with Christianity. You you converted in high school, is that correct? I did. I did. I, I got, a friend of mine in high school took me along to his youth group, and I was this, I was a nice kid, and I walk into a room of three hundred kids in a rock band, and they're all singing about being good people and loving other people, and they're going on missions trips to feed orphan children and. It just seemed like a club for nice people, you know, and I was just hooked. It was, I wanted to be part of that community. And so for me, you know, it's funny, like, you know, a lot of times when you talk to secular people and they're talking to Christian people or, you know, they're always talking about theology, but it isn't theology that draws most of us into Christianity or into the church. It's the loving relationships. It's the community. And so I was just drawn in. I just wanted to be part of that community. And I figured, like, okay, like, if I have to fake being a Christian to be part of this, I'll do it. And at some point in the faking, you know, for a few months I'm praying and I'm seeking and I'm going, like, God, if you're there, show up. And then at some point you have a transcendent experience. You know, at some point you're on a retreat and it's late at night and there's candlelight and everybody's singing, Our God is an awesome God. And you suddenly feel something and you go, like, this is real. I believe it. Something's happening here. And, you know, sociologists would explain it differently. They would say that's collective effervescence, or, or they would say that's a, that's a you know, a, a, you're, you're getting swept up in a group mentality. All I know is it felt real to me. And, um, and so, yeah, I became a Christian when I was in high school, and I loved being a Christian. I, I loved it all the way through. Like, you know, I love that community. I love the stuff that we're doing. I love the music. Um, you know, if, if I could believe in the core idea that there's this good and loving God that made us and that ultimately is going to save us all and we're all going to live forever in utopia, if I could believe that now, believe me, I would jump right back in. But you mentioned that you uh, uh, converted in high school. I'm just curious, what was going on at home? Wasn't your father already heavily invested as a minister? Oh, yeah. And, and I, growing up, I mean, I thought my parents were wonderful people. And I knew my dad was a very sincere believer. The reason I didn't become a Christian until high school wasn't because my dad was a bad guy or I, I was rebellious. It was just like, even as a kid, the Bible stories made no sense to me. I mean, we learned a lot of stories when I was a kid about, like, flying genies and, and magical carpets and, and, you know, dogs that talk. And the, and the Bible stories always seem to me to be just like those stories, like exciting and wonderful, but like not very likely to be true. And so my problem growing up wasn't that I was rebellious. It was just I didn't believe in God. God and, made no sense to me. And, and how were the dynamics in the household of you holding these views at a young age and not being the perfect well, Sunday know, school? When you're a little kid, you don't, you don't stand up and say, I think this is balderdash. What you do is you just go to Sunday school. You just go along. You're just a nice person. I'm like, this was the community I grew up in. And so I just sort of, you know, you, you just you just go along. I mean, okay. You know, I, sure. I, I, and, 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 I, I, and I think that for me, the older I got, you know, I was a nice kid. And, and in my family, being nice was the most important thing. You know, if you were kind, you kind of looked like a Christian. You know? And so... I, so for me, it wasn't really hard to kind of be in a church context because the values are values that I did and do think are wonderful. 
And so, you know, but when I became a Christian in high school, I remember sort of telling my parents, like, you know, you know, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. I hope you see a difference. And they were like, yeah, you know, you, you seem to be really into it now. And I really was. And, 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 so, and I, I'm, I'm sorry. So, so tell us about dropping the big bomb many years later. How was that for you and your parents? Well, you know, I think, and, and probably a lot of listeners on your show have had this experience of being on the other side of a faith divide with somebody that they love. And so, for me, I mean, it wasn't as tectonic as you might think, because I, you know, I, I really wanted to stay a Christian. And so throughout my Christian life, I kept changing my theology to try to make it work. You know, like when, when I realized, like, I, the, Christian, the, the churches that I was in were kind of, that gay, gay people were not okay. Like, it wasn't okay to be gay in my world. But, like, I went to college, I had lots of gay friends, and so I changed my theology to, to accommodate gay people. I was like, I started underlining one set of Bible verses and ignoring another set. And then, like, you know, I knew, I knew people that weren't Christians, and I knew they were going to go to hell if they didn't accept Jesus Christ. But, like, I decided, like, no, a loving God wouldn't send anybody to hell. And so I, I became a universalist, and I, I started underlining one set of verses and, and, you know, and ignoring another set of verses. And so, you know, I kept changing my theology all along the way. And by the time, you know, and, and so my parents saw this migration. And so a lot of my friends said that when I came out as a secularist, they were like, it was sort of like coming out gay. They were sort of like, yeah, we knew. We wondered when you'd figure it out. Um, and so, but still, for my, for my mom and dad, when I sat them down and said, hey, I'm not a liberal Christian anymore. I'm not a progressive Christian. I'm not a red-letter Christian. I'm a post-Christian. There is nothing left. I can't, I can't use that language anymore. My dad was just devastated. I, I, mean, I think it was hard on my mom, too, but for my dad... I think it's a combination of, on the one hand, this is his community. This is the tribe that we were a part of. I was his colleague. We worked on ministry projects together. And so when I left, when I say I'm done, you know, he's losing his best Christian buddy, like the guy he works with. And the other thing is he's famous as a Christian. And it's embarrassing when you're a famous evangelist and your kid, you know, like, turns away from the faith. Like, I mean, I mean, knew, like, you know, I knew, and I knew this, this was painful for me to know that, like, for, for the rest of his life, people would be going, coming up to him and saying, sorry about your son. Boy, that's really disappointing about Bart. Like, what happened? I mean, that, I, I hated to put him in that situation. I can imagine that that was, uh, was painful for both of you. Uh, let me ask you this. Now, let's, let's say right now, Let's say that your father is right and you were wrong. Okay, let's just, just pretend that that that, that his theology. You're going to Pascal wager me? No, no, no. That's not it. Not going in that direction at all. Okay, all right. I'm listening. Uh, you were saved. If if there is a heaven to go to, aren't you? Aren't you there? See what I'm saying? Oh, you know it. I guess it all depends on your theology. I mean, there's, I'm talking about your father. Yeah, yeah, saved. yeah, yeah. Your father. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, doesn't your father subscribe to that? Or you know, I think my. I think when my, you, you, I mean, you'll get a chance to ask my father, and it's sure. a good question for him. 
I think what I became very aware of in that moment when I told him, like, I'm done. And my, my, my wife, my wife and I sort of made this journey together. And so she, we were both sort of sitting there saying like, Hey, we're out of here. Um, we're trying to figure out what life looks like on the other side. I think that we were both very cognizant of the fact that my, my, my parents aren't the kind of people who think that God is going to damn us to everlasting, um, suffering because we have the wrong theology or because we're not capable of believing in, in him anymore. I think, I think my parents are probably have a very, a very gracious understanding of, of God. And, and my, my dad, I think would probably even say like, listen, you may not believe it now, but when you get to the pearly gates and when you, when you meet Jesus, you'll, then you'll know. And he's like, and he's like, and if you change your mind then and you say, well, Jesus, can I embrace you now? I think my dad thinks that Jesus never gives up. On, on, on this side of death or on the other side of death. I mean, the idea that death is this artificial deadline in which, like, God can't forgive you anymore, I think he would say, like, I think God can forgive you anytime, and God can receive you anytime you're ready to be received. And so I, I, I don't think he's death. I don't think the primary reason he's upset about me leaving the faith is because he's worried I'm going to burn in hell. Um but I, I tell you, I counsel a lot of people who have left the faith and are trying to have relationships with their family. One of the reasons we wrote this book was to try to help families that are in this situation. And I talk to a lot of people, and that is the sticking point, because their parents' theology says that they're going to burn in hell, and so their parents can't accept them as they are because they love them, and they don't want them to die. Right, right. That's no. an incredibly painful thing, to believe that the God that you love is going to kill your child forever um, is so painful that um, I have so much compassion for people whose theology puts them in that bind. Do you have people uh, in, in your fellowship at, at uh, University of Southern California uh, who come from other religious backgrounds uh, aside from Christianity who have become secularists? Sure. Muslim, ex-Muslims, ex-Buddhists, ex-Sikhs. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm sure it keeps you busy. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a wonderful thing, because what, what the most of the kids in my fellowship, they may have grown up in those traditions, but like most of them, I would say, at least half of them, never believed in anything. They never believed in any supernatural force. They were, they were secular from the time. And so what's exciting for them is, is that they, they've always looked on religious communities and said, wow, those people seem to be having a lot of fun and really caring about each other. Um, wish, kind of wish we had something like that. And so for them, it does keep you busy because there are all these... And, and secular evangelism is so easy. I mean, when I try to lead people to Jesus, I'd get them all excited about our lifestyle, get them all excited about our community, and then they'd say, what do I have to believe to get in? And you'd say, well, actually, you have to believe quite a few really unbelievable things to get in. In this, in this kind of world of ministry, you build a community of loving people with a real sense of purpose, and then people say, well, what do I have to believe to get in? And you're, you say, nothing. You don't have to believe in anything that you don't have evidence for. Like, we're, we're going we're gonna to pursue goodness on the basis of common sense, like on the basis of evidence. Bart, I, I, I have to... Wow! This is fun. This is really fun. Bart, I hate to break uh, break this off, but unfortunately, we are out of time. But I want to thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Hey, thanks for having me. I, I, I so enjoy, appreciate it, and I, I hope you have a great conversation with my dad. I'm sure I will. 
You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and today my guest was Bart Campolo, the co-author of Why I Left, Why I Stayed, Conversations on Christianity Between an Evangelical Father and His Humanist Son. Please join us next week when I will speak with Bart's father, Tony, right here on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we had a conversation with Bart Campolo. He is a humanist chaplain at USC, and he is the co-author of a book, Why I Left, Why I Stayed, which he wrote with his father, Tony Campolo. And by the way, the subtitle is Conversations on Christianity Between an Evangelical Father and His Humanist Son. Bart was raised in a Christian home by Tony. At the age of 50, he announces to his father and mother that he and his wife are no longer Christian but are atheists. Well, as you can imagine, uh, there were challenges on, on all sides. But what came of this challenge was the book, why I left, why I stayed. We thought it would have, was a good idea to speak with Bart last week, and as I say, we're speaking with Tony this week. Tony is an author, pastor, and speaker, a Christian teacher, and professor emeritus of sociology at Eastern University. He's written over 30 books, including 20 Hot Potatoes, Let Me Tell You a Story, It's Friday, But Sunday's Coming, and A Reasonable Faith. He is also the co-founder of Red Letter Christians. And we welcome to Common Threads, Tony Campolo. Hello, Tony. Hello, and I'm glad to be your guest. Thank you. Actually, you know something, Tony? You were our guest. I would not expect you to remember this with all of the media that you do, but I think we had you on, I'm going to guess, at least a dozen years ago. It could be as long as maybe even 15 years 
Uh, well, I've been around a long time. I, I know you have. And when we <laughs> essentially had a, a conversation about your journey as a progressive evangelical Christian, you're one of those. You're one of those evangelicals that confuses all of us because we are, we think we know what an evangelical is. <laughs> yeah. We think we know how evangelicals vote, and we think we know how uh, what what issues are important to evangelicals. And then we talk to Tony Campolo, and he says, ah, "Not all the time." Yeah. There's a great tendency uh, for people to confuse uh, evangelicals with a sector of evangelicalism, namely white evangelicals. Uh, they have a very conservative social agenda. African American evangelicals, Hispanic evangelicals, they are pretty progressive in their social values. So uh, a lot of confusion exists out there. I happen to have uh, an evangelical theology, but my social concerns uh, move me away from where most white evangelicals stand these days. Right, I understand that. Uh, I uh, I would imagine that since uh, uh, probably during the campaign and now uh, uh, past the election and into the current administration, I imagine you, you're probably a busy guy. We are busy. Uh, we are trying to, in fact, get people focused on what we call the red letters of the Bible. The old old Bibles had the words of Jesus highlighted in red letters. And we are trying to get Christians to say, hey, it's about time we pay attention to the radical lifestyle that Jesus taught. The church preaches theology. It's not about to say the things that Jesus said. If you want to be my disciple, he said, sell what you have and give it to the poor and take up the cross and follow me. Many of us don't like the Sermon on the Mount. Many evangelicals say, what do you mean turn the other cheek? And as this political campaign has emerged, uh, we have trouble reconciling uh, Donald Trump's toughness with the uh, theology of Jesus, as in the Beatitudes, where he calls upon us to be meek, uh, to overcome evil with good, where he calls upon us to uh, shy away from violence of all kinds. So uh, we're, we're having our hard days these days. I would imagine so. The... Um... The last time I spoke to you, I remember one thing very clearly, and again, being about a dozen years ago or so, uh, I wouldn't expect you to remember, but we were talking, among other things, about uh, gay relationships and gays in the church and your, your understanding, your, your belief about homosexuality, etc., and I recall that you said that your wife was a little bit more at that time progressive than you, maybe even a lot more progressive. That I can't remember. But but what, does that sound like something that you would have that said? It sounds like something that people ask me about, uh, because for a long while my wife and I uh, had a dialogue on this issue, uh, she being much more conservative than I am. I have to say that over the last couple of years, as I have come to know gay people, closely, uh, gotten to know gay couples, uh, I have modified my position and become a lot more soft on the issue of gays. So let's talk about uh, about the book. Uh, as I mentioned, I had a really excellent conversation with your son. I, I can imagine you're very proud of him. Uh, it, tell us about uh, 
how this book happened. Now, I'll tell you this, and you can certainly add to it. I did ask Bart about the 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 thing. It was Thanksgiving, I think. Was it? Was it on Thanksgiving? Mm-hmm. Yeah, on Thanksgiving a couple uh, of years ago. A couple of years ago, he dropped the bomb that he no longer was a Christian and no longer believed in God, and he, there were tears, there was concern, and all of that. Tell us your side of that story. Well, the context has to be understood. This uh, boy, this son of mine, uh, was not just a Christian, uh, not just a believer. He was a dedicated disciple of Christ and of the Church. He had started a mission organization called Mission Year, and hundreds and hundreds of young men and women uh, had been challenged into Christian ministries, into the mission field, because of his leadership in that role. He was a popular speaker on the evangelical circle. I constantly meet people who say, I was led into a personal relationship with Christ because of your son's preaching. Bart was instrumental in bringing me to where I am as a servant of Jesus Christ today. In addition to that, he worked with me for about 15 years in the organization that I was running at that time, the Evangelical Association for the Promotion of Education. So he was a a colleague, a co-worker, an evangelist, a a writer. I mean, on all of a sudden, for this high-profile Christian, my son, to suddenly say to me, guess what, Dad? I don't believe in God anymore. I mean, it was a bombshell. And needless to say, when you're where I am as a Christian, it was like a, a knife went into me. I mean, I felt pain go to my toes and to the top of my head. So it was a very hard pill to swallow. And what was your response to him, the immediate response? uh, Uh, Well, my immediate response was silence. Uh, I didn't know what to say. Um, We chatted uh, after that. I don't know what I said because I was in a state of shock. But when he left the the room, I, I said with my wife, the one thing we cannot do. And she said, certainly, this is the one thing we cannot do. We cannot cut off relationships. We have to say, stay close to our son. This is our son. We love him. The fact that he isn't where we are in beliefs, in his uh, Christian experience, in his religion, uh, cannot be a barrier to our, our relationship as parents to a child. And so we resolve to maintain a very close relationship with him. In addition to that, I I thought, uh, you know, a week from now, I'm going on a preaching tour in the United Kingdom. I'll be away for five days. And I looked at him and I said, Bart, I'm going to be in England, and um, I'll be traveling from place to place by train. We'll have coffee in the afternoon. Why don't you come along and we'll talk about this? We'll see if we can uh, come to some deeper understanding of our respective points of view. And so for about five days, at least four or five hours a day, we talked. And as we talked, it became pretty evident that the conversations we were having were the kind of conversations that parents and children should have if a barrier of faith comes between them. We thought we were, would be, it would be good to model for other people how uh, a father and a son can talk to each other when such an announcement as Bart made has been made. 
And so it was out of that that we came up with this idea of writing the book, uh, Why I Left, Why I Stayed, wherein he could explain himself to me as to why he little by little moved away from the uh, faith that we had reared him in and that we could model how a father and a son can talk to each other in the midst of such a chasm that's been created between them so far as their beliefs are concerned. In your conversations, did you come to a point where clearly you you disagree with him, otherwise the the book would be called Why I Left, Why I Left? Yeah. Uh, but uh, can you do you get it? Do you do you understand what his issues are? I think I do, and I think he is convinced that I understand him. I think he understands me, and he understands my concerns, and uh, uh, and that I think is very very important. That when something like this happens, and incidentally, let me just break here and say that um, I have five friends who meet with me about every other week. We have breakfast together and talk about what's going on in our lives. All of them are Christian leaders. When I told them what had happened between Bart and me, there was dead silence. And then one of them said, I think you're going to make honest men out of the rest of us. We went around the circle, and every one of them had at least one child who had been reared in the Christian faith and had walked away from it. So what has gone on between Bart and myself is not unusual. It's happening all over the place. I mean, you know from your studies that uh, the number of young people, when asked about religious affiliation, say, I have none. The people who call themselves non-affiliated with religion is the fastest-growing segment in the religious world today. And so that's why we thought the book would be helpful. What did he say to me to help me understand where he was and how he got there? And what I had said said to him as I challenged him to come back to the faith, uh, we didn't have what we would call an argument for a very simple reason. I have never met anybody who became a Christian or came back to Jesus because he or she lost an argument. Think about that. When was the last time you argued somebody into the Christian faith? Uh, It's not the way it happens. People are brought back to faith. People do become believers and disciples of Jesus, or whatever their religious affiliation may be. But it's, it's not that they are overpowered by an argument. There are other things that bring people back. And one of them is that uh, loving understanding, empathy with the other person. I I think that's the way Jesus functioned. He didn't argue with people. He empathized with people. He connected with people emotionally and spiritually. And that's what Bart and I tried to do with each other. We tried to connect with each other emotionally and spiritually, even across the line. You you labeled him an atheist. And that's, I think that's, probably something he would say, I am not. I am a believer. I believe in the human spirit. I uh, don't believe in the supernatural. But uh, when you listen to him, as you did, you probably found that he had all the values of a religious person, and that the way in which he functioned at the University of Southern California, where he's the humanist chaplain, uh, 
you, you sense that he had deep spiritual values and deep spiritual connectedness. He just did not believe that these spiritual values and these connected relationships with students at USC were in any way supernatural. He did not have a supernatural component to his faith. So uh, uh, he calls himself uh, a humanist rather than a, uh, an atheist, and I pro- you probably got that out of him. Yes, yes, I did. You're, you're correct. I want to mention for people just tuning in that you're listening to WGVU. The program is Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella. And with me today is Tony Campolo. He is the co-author, along with his son, Bart Campolo, of the book, Why I Left, Why I Stayed, Conversations on Christianity Between an Evangelical Father and His Humanist Son. Now, here's a question that I asked Bart last week, and he said I should probably talk to you about it. Uh, having a uh, um, an evangelical theology, and I believe that your theology is pretty Baptist. Am I correct? Well, I don't know whether Baptist is a good word to use anymore, but <laughs> it's basically historically Baptist. Yes, I okay. believe the following things. I believe in the doctrines that you read about in the Apostles' Creed. I believe that the Bible is no ordinary book. I believe that the writers were imbued by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, who guided their writings so that what they produced was an infallible guide for faith and practice. And I believe that the Jesus, the historical Jesus that we believe in, was resurrected from the grave, is alive, and is spiritually present here and now. And I invite people into a personal relationship with that Jesus. That's what my preaching is about, to invite people to come to know Jesus, not as a historical figure, but as a person whom they can invite to invade their being and transform them from within. Well, that's a traditional evangelical theology. That's where I come from. Yes, yes, exactly. So, coming from that theology, now, there are different takes on what I'm about to say, but coming from the, the, the theology that I believe you hold, if Bart was saved when he was in high school, even though he is a humanist now, would you expect to see him in heaven? Well, that's a, that's a strong question. Let me tell you the answer, yes, and I'll tell you why. I believe that at the end of life, Jesus confronts us with himself in all of his glory. And at that point, I think when Jesus comes face to face with the resurrected Jesus, he will have an opportunity in that existential encounter to say, I'm sorry I rejected you. I want to embrace you now. I think that Jesus uh, gives us one more chance at the end of life. And that goes for all the religions of the world. I think that Jesus confronts every person in his magnificence and in his glory and asks, will you let me embrace you and love you now? Will you surrender to my love at this point? I I think that I can make that case biblically. In 1 John um, 6, uh, 15, for instance, it says that, uh, well, Satan is the ruler of this world. It it says very carefully in the book of, uh, particularly in the book of, a book of First John, First John particularly, there are places where it says that Jesus will confront us at the end of life, and uh, it says uh, in the Apostles' Creed, uh, though we're, we're we descend into hell, lo, thou art there. 
that Christ will chase us down the labyrinths of time and find us where we are and confront us with himself. And so we will have a chance, every person will have a chance to accept and reject Jesus in the end. So I expect that Bart would say yes to Jesus with such an encounter. The reason why he's turned away from the faith is not that he's against Jesus. It's that the whole thing became unreal to him as he embraced naturalism and gave up any belief in the supernatural. And at the end of life, when the supernatural impinges on him, I think that he will, in fact, say yes. So, from what you're saying, it's not that he was once saved. You're saying that even if he wasn't, if he didn't go through that convergence experience in high school, and you're also saying that the Buddhist and the Muslim and everyone else will will all have this opportunity at the moment of death. I think the Bible says he does not leave himself without a witness to any person. And I think if you were to ask Bart this question, and you probably did, did you have a genuine spiritual experience with Jesus back when you were in high school? He would say, yes, I did. Yes, we did talk about that. I did have that experience, but it has become unreal to me. And in that unreality, I have left the faith. So he had an experience. There are those who say, once you have an experience with Jesus, you can't ever lose it. You can't ever drift away from it. I disagree. I believe that one can slip away from Jesus. And I've known so many people, every pastor of every church knows people who once were alive in spiritual things concerning Christianity who have drifted away. He would say, I was there and I lost it. And I don't think I'm ever going to find it again. And the difference between us is that I'm saying, in the words of uh, uh, Yogi Berra, it ain't over till it's over. (laughs) And that I believe that there will be a time when uh, Bart will be confronted by the spiritual Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and that he will be overawed by that love and that empathy that Christ has for him and will want to come back to the faith. Uh, by the way, in the book, while the, the the vast majority of the book, the body of the book, is written uh, uh, by you and Bart, your wife, Peggy, writes a, a wonderful foreword, uh, and I, I, I'm going to ask you to uh, talk a little bit about her reaction to everything. By everything, I mean not, not just the announcement that we, we are no longer Christians, but that, that how it has proceeded uh, and uh, and come to this point where you have a book together. Yes, well, let me uh, respond by saying the book's been out by a couple of weeks, and the people who have read it said, oh, it was such a wonderful conversation between you and your son, and then they always stop and say, and that introduction that your wife read, that was the best part of the book. <laughs> and she deals with two men, uh, a 50-year-old son who is walked away from Christianity, and a uh, 82-year-old father who continues to love Jesus passionately and preaches him with great enthusiasm. How do I, the wife, the mother, caught between these two men, uh, deal with it? And uh, she affirms both of us and does it in such a gracious and loving way. And she doesn't get into theology. She says, this is about love. 
This is about loving my son, and at the same time, loving my husband, and praying and hoping that their love for each other will bring them into a harmonious relationship. Um, I have to say that probably uh, many of us would be jealous. Uh, Sons with fathers, the ability to have the quality and the quantity of time he had from you, particularly when riding the rails in England, and to have, have hours and hours to just talk about everything. And so while he was asking you questions, and obviously you asked him questions too, he was asking you to defend your faith. And I'm sure he wasn't doing it in, in a charged manner, but you were ultimately having to come up with answers to questions that were challenging to him that led him away from his religion. I'm wondering, did this make you a better pastor? Did the exercise uh, uh, strengthen you? Well, it certainly uh, made me a lot more respectful of people who, like Bart, have left the faith. You know, I often uh, dismiss their their skepticism and their non-belief in a cavalier fashion. And with Bart, I realized the intense sincerity, uh, the great emotional turmoil that he had to endure as he went through this transition from believer to non-believer. And uh, let me just say, you're right, I had the luxury of this time. My advice to fathers who, uh, who find that their sons or their daughters have drifted away from the faith and say, gee, I wish I had the time that Tony had, is very simple. This is so important and of such ultimate concern that you ought to take a week off of work you ought to take a, a couple of weeks off uh, and go someplace with your son and daughter and, and, and so that you can listen to each other and talk to each other in depth. Uh, yes, we did have the luxury of doing this uh, while I was on a speaking tour in England. But let me just say, every parent should recognize that this is so important. If I, have to, if I have to stop work for a week, if I have to stop school for a week, I'm going to do it. We need to talk to each other. This is father-son or father-daughter relationships that are at stake here, and we need to spend time. And it happened that it worked out nicely for me. But if it hadn't, I know what I would have to do. I would have to say, Bart, you pick the week. But we're going to take a week and go off someplace and just the two of us talk about this. This is not a luxury. This is a necessity. I, uh, I can only imagine that it is something that will be a part of him for the rest of his life, certainly, certainly uh, you as well. It's, uh, again, that, that is a magnificent example of parenthood. It really is. Uh, especially... Uh, today, as you say, when people are so invested in their careers and they don't necessarily uh, see things like this as a as a priority, uh, so do you think that that this experience is going to broaden your ministry to where people will be coming to you? Maybe they already have coming to you as someone who can uh, walk with them on their journey when they have uh, issues with with family, as you did. The answer to that very important question is this. But before Bart made his confession of non-belief, 
it was a regular thing for parents to call me on the phone or to come to my office for, for a meeting and say, my child has left the faith in which I reared the child. How can I get him back? It was happening long before this and happening with great frequency. The frequency has not changed. Parents are still coming and still asking the same question. How can I get my child back into a good relationship with Jesus, back into a good relationship with God? And the thing that has changed is that I react emotionally very different, uh, very differently than I did if before it was my son. It was, uh, it was a sense that I, I began to feel the hurt and the pain and the agony of people who are deeply committed to their faith to have a son or a daughter walk away from it. I have Jewish friends whose children have left the faith, and they have the same kind of agony that I have. Uh, this is a, the thing that is of ultimate concern in my life is my relationship with Jesus. And I, I'm looking at my son, who will confess that he, he once had a relationship with Jesus, at least he thought he had, and now it's no more. And I understand the pain of those parents. So n n the fact that parents come to me and talk about this is not new. Uh, I get more parents talking to me about this than anything else. Tony, I want to thank you so much for your time here. We're, we're out of time at the moment, but uh, it, this has been a great conversation, and I wish you the very best with uh, your book and uh, your life with your wife and uh, son, Bart. It's, it's been great. I thank you for that, and I hope that people get the book, uh, Why I Left, Why I Stayed, because I think it will help to carry on the conversation that we have had with each other this last half hour. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella, my guest, Tony Campolo. Please join us again next week here on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. Common Threads.